Hi, this is Sarit Schwetzer, and welcome to the It Is Taught podcast, a podcast devoted to the teachings of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi, as recorded in his most famous work, the Tanya. My hope for this show is to make these teachings accessible and relatable to the average person, regardless of prior Jewish education or affiliation. The episodes follow the prescribed daily study portions and are meant to serve as practical lessons in how to live your life as your true self and develop an authentic and powerful relationship with your creator. I have personally experienced the effects the study of this work has had on me, and I'm excited to share what I can of this knowledge with you. So please join me on this journey of learning, self-growth, and connection with your source. Hi, and welcome to the It Is Top podcast. This is episode 581 for the 7th of Tomos in a regular year. So there is a very popular motto in Silicon Valley and those kind of environments, which was originally attributed to Mark Zuckerberg, which is move fast and break things. What does this mean? Well, originally, Mark Zuckerberg, what he had in mind in using this phrase and coining this phrase is that his team of innovators, he didn't want them to be too cautious. He didn't want them to refrain from doing different types of experiments or coming up with new ideas for fear of them being bad ideas, for fear of making mistakes. Mark Zuckerberg understood that mistakes are human, mistakes are part of the learning process, and mistakes are an integral part of innovation. And he really encouraged and continues to encourage his employees to really just continue to try to work by process of trial and error. And he felt very strongly that this process of trial and error, this process of moving fast, just coming up with new ideas all the time and seeing what sticks is really the best way to innovate. This is where progress is going to come from. So this idea has been disputed somewhat. Not everybody is so in line with it anymore, but there's some truth to the matter. And we'll learn about this actually in today's Tanya, about how there's some truth to the matter, even when it comes to Torah and even when it comes to our service of God. So we'll get into that soon, but there's a few other introductory remarks that I want to get to first. Uh, we are learning a new, we're beginning a new book today of the Tanya, a new section of the Tanya. So it's very exciting. First of all, this new section of the Tanya is called Igeris Hatshuva. And for those of you who have been following along with me throughout this journey, I'm so thankful for you. I'm so grateful. This has been incredible for me. It's like every time I turn on my computer and I'm about to record a new episode, I can't believe how far we We've come. We're in episode 230. Like that, that's kind of crazy to me, you know. But I, I hope that you've been having as much fun and learning as much as I have been along the way with all of this. So before we get back into the idea of move fast and break things, which I promise we'll get back to, I want to give a few more introductory remarks about this book and what it is that we're going to be learning and what it's all about. So before we get to this book, let's maybe just give like a re- brief recap of what the other two preceding books were about if you recall, maybe after having traveled through this journey of listening to this podcast for a while, maybe you could kind of sense a very big difference between the first section of the Tanya and the second section of the Tanya. And then we're now coming into the third section of the Tanya. So the first section of the Tanya is what's known as Sefer Shel Benonim, the book of the intermediate man. And if you recall, what we learned about there was all about the makeup of our souls, what our souls are made up of and what it means exactly to be this intermediate man, why it's something that we need to strive for, uh, what it's all about, how we can try to attain this and what it means to live a life 
that is focused on serving God in such a way of being an intermediate man. The struggles of everyday life. There's a lot of psychology involved in that section of, of the book. The second section of the Tanya, Shari Chudra which we just concluded yesterday, is a little bit more like philosophical in nature, a little bit more God-centric, so to speak. So it's a little bit more, uh, it's less focused on the human and less focused on the human soul and more focused on God and his interaction with the world around us and the makeup and the building blocks of our world. And not only our world, but all of the world, all of the spiritual worlds. Um, I noticed a lot of parallels to quantum mechanics in that section, like just like kind of like what is the basis of reality? Who is God? How do we relate to this God, this thing that we call God? What's that all about? So that's what we're up to so far. Now we're coming into this new section. And this new section, again, is called Igeris Hachuva, which loosely translates to mean the epistle of repentance. Although, as I've mentioned previously, the translations in he, in, from Hebrew to English often are really, really lacking, and it's it's hard to translate some of these words accurately. So, tshuva is often translated as repentance, but as we'll learn, the word is actually a lot more uh, similar to the word re- return. It comes from the root of the word tashuv, lashuv, which in Hebrew means to return. And so what this section of the Tanya is going to teach us about is all about the idea of returning, returning to God, which really ultimately means returning to our true self, returning to the true essence of who we are. So one interesting uh, factoid, which I learned in preparing for this podcast that I thought I'd share with you guys, is that the Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya, he was known not only for uh, authoring the Tanya, but he was actually known for authoring um, his rendition of the Shulchan Aruch, which is the code of Jewish law. So he was a very unique character in that sense that he not only was very well versed and really a genius in terms of the more esoteric understanding of the Torah, but he also was a genius in terms of the more down-to-earth, practical, uh, legal aspects of the Torah as well. And this is, I mean, this is a discussion for another time, but part of this has to do with his upbringing, that he actually was, did not come from a Hasidic background. He actually came from a Litvak background. And he, uh, and, and this is kind of alluded to in his name, the fact that he had these two sides to him. His name's Schneer Zalman. So it's spoken about in Hasid as how his name's Schneer Zalman. The first name Schneer, if you say it slowly, it sounds like Schneor which is two lights. And the reason, the explanation for this is because he was kind of like uh, radiated these two lights, the light of the the revealed Torah on the one hand through his Shulchan Aruch and the light of the hidden Torah on the other hand, which was his Tanya and his more esoteric teachings. Like he also had another book of Torah or and Likute Torah, which are these more deeper ideas on the Parsha. So anyways, so interestingly, the Freydeke Rebbe, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson, he pointed out something very interesting. He said that if we think about this idea of how it is that the Alter Rebbe was really this um, progenitor of bringing these two lights to the world, and he had these two sides of him, the the uh, the Tanya, and then he also had the Shulchan Aruch side, he said that there's actually a parallel with these two books. So that if you look at the Shulchan Aruch, there are actually four parts of the Shulchan Aruch. There's uh, the, the first part of the Shulchan Aruch is what's known as the Orach Chaim. This is the laws of prayer and being in Shul and Shabbos and different holidays and things like that. Then the second part of the Shulchan Aruch is known as Yore Dea. These are the laws of Kashrus, the laws of conversion, the laws of mourning, 
laws regarding Israel, laws of family purity. So things like that, like kind of like laws uh, relating to everyday life. And then the third section is the Evan Ha'ezer, which is the laws of marriage, divorce, and different related issues around that. And then the fourth section is Choshen Mishpat, which is the laws of finance uh, and damages and things regarding the based in like um like going to to court and just different monetary kind of disputes so the fredikarabba said that he really saw a parallel between these four sections of the shulchan aruch and the different sections of the tanya so the tanya can be also divided up into four four main sections even though that fourth section is actually further subdivided into two sections, um, which we'll learn about when we get there. But so far, we, but in general, we can say that the Tanya is also made up of these four sections. And so then we can say that each one of the four sections corresponds to one, to each one of the sections of the Tanya. So that in that case, that would mean that the Orachayim, the first section, which is about prayer and Shabbos and the holidays and like spiritual service of God, corresponds to Sefer Shil Benonim, the first section of the Tanya, which makes sense if you think about it, right? Because it's like being, learning how to be a Benoni, learning about the makeup of your, of your soul really is all about prayer and all about connecting to God on this level of, uh, of who you are as a spiritual being. The second section, which is Sharia Chutva Muna. This is again talking about God, talking about God's presence here in the world and everything. So that you could say also fits in with Yoridea, the section second section of the Shulchan Aruch, which again is about laws of kosher, conversion, mourning, stuff like that. So at first it's like what? So I, to me, I think that's just like it's sort of like seeing how God that it's 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 a very practical thing in the sense of like on the one hand we're looking learning about God's like um, transcendence in the world and but we're also learning about his imminence in the world and we're learning about how God is very much present in every single thing in the nitty-gritty of our lives like down to what we eat down to um, how, how we live everything in our lives God is really present there and it's a reminder of that okay then we have this third section the section of Igeris Shuva that we're up to and so what would that correspond to that would correspond to the section in the uh, in the Shulchan Aruch known as the Evin HaEzer, which again is the laws of marriage, divorce, and other things like that. So how does that correspond? Well, ultimately, on a spiritual level, we are all married to God. This is the big, uh, on a communal level, at, at Har Sinai on, um, on the 6th of Sivan, we all receive the Torah from God. And this really finalized this uh consummated our union with God as being his wife. And so it's often thought of as our relationship with God is thought of as being a relationship between a husband and a wife. And something interesting about the idea of marriage in general, which has been pointed out by uh, different scholars, is that if you look at the laws of marriage in, um, in the Gemara, where you study it, so that the laws of marriage are written, mostly are really focused on an attractate called Kiddushin, in the Gemara. However, there's another tractate, which is called Gitin, which focuses on the laws of divorce. And interestingly, this tractate of Gitin is found before the tractate of Kedushan. So the laws of divorce precede the laws of marriage, which at first glance might sound, first of all, kind of weird and also depressing. Like, why are we talking about divorce before we talk about marriage? Uh, and there's different reasons for this and everything. And the way that the Rambam explains this is he says that just very simply, let's say, practically speaking, if let's say you have a woman who is, for whatever reason, 
is in the type of marriage that needs that she it's, it's good that she gets divorced so there is in judaism we do believe that there are times that it's good to get divorced so if she wants to then get remarried to someone else she needs to first get divorced so it's like then it makes sense the order of of uh of events is that first you get divorced and then you get married meaning remarried and so Okay, so so what does this have to do with Iger Sachuva, this this epistle of repentance that we've been learning about? So the idea here is that there's when we talk about repentance and when we talk about the idea of returning to God, one way that we can think about it is that this is us remarrying God. Because what happens is that yes, we married God originally collectively as Jewish people on Mount Sinai on the sixth of Sivan. But then time went by, you know, and many things happened throughout Jewish history on a collective level and also for ourselves through our lives. We might, we might be born into a Jewish family and uh, we maybe start off very connected in a certain way. I mean, everybody could relate to this on whatever level. Obviously, every single individual life circumstance is going to be really different, but maybe throughout our lives in different ways and uh, maybe this is a continual process where we're kind of like going away from God in some ways and we're straying from the path. So we're divorcing God, so to speak. And then at some point or another, hopefully we come back and we say that we want to reconnect with God. We want to reestablish our relationship with God, which ultimately we'll learn is reestablishing our connection and relationship with ourselves. And so this is really likened to a remarriage of sorts. This is likened to us getting reconnected with God, remarried, recommitted to God. And so this explains why it is that this section of the Tanya, this section of Igar Sachuva, really corresponds very nicely to the section in the Shulchan Aruch, known as the Evan HaEzer, which corresponds to the laws of marriage and divorce. So I thought that was a really cute and neat thing to talk about and bring up here to give us kind of like a little um, springboard into what we're going to focus on in the book. And so really... The focus is really all about, like, we've learned about the soul somewhat in Sefer Shilbein on the first part. We learned about God and we learned about the world um, in the second part of Sharia Chudba Munah. And now in this section of the Tanya, we're going to learn about how to return to God. Once we realize how far we are from God, or if we, God forbid, become far away from God, what does it mean to return? And we're going to learn about what different sins, quote unquote, again, not a great translation, but different ways of transgressions going against God's will, how this affects our soul and how can we get um rectify these effects that they have on our soul and and what this does to us as people so that brings us to today and that brings us to the very very first chapter of the Igeras Hachuva and what we're going to learn about and how this relates again to move moving fast and breaking things and what that's all about so I'll just give you guys like a quick quick little uh overview of what we're going to learn about in the chapter and how I feel that this relates to the Mark Zuckerberg quote so the way that the altar is going to begin this this section of the Tanya, this chapter, is he's going to break down for us the three instances, the three general instances where a person would need to do tshuva, where a person would need to go through this process of repentance, of return, for lack of a better word. So what are these three instances in brief? Well, so just a quick review is that in general, when we look at the commandments of the Torah, what it is that God wants us to do in our lives and how to uh, fulfill what it is that our, our purposes in our lives here 
is this is basically the what is known as the 613 commandments that God gave us. So God instructed every single Jewish person to keep the 613 commandments throughout their lives. And yes, there are subcategories. Yes, some are more relevant or less relevant to who we are. But that's the basic breakdown is 613 commandments. We talked about how each one of these has a different like spiritual energy attached to it that's attached to some aspect of our body. And these 613 commandments can be broken up into two subcategories such that of the 613 commandments, 248 of those commandments are what are known as the positive commandments. In Hebrew, the mitzvahs ase. And 365 of those 613 commandments are what are known of as the negative commandments, the prohibitions, the transgressions. In Hebrew, the mitzvahs lotase. This is what we should not do. So with this in mind, so now going back into what we're going to learn today. So the altar says, what are the three instances where a person might need to do tshuva? Instance number one is if somebody neglects to do a positive commandment. So this is a sin of omission. There's something that you're supposed to do that you're called upon to do in a, in a proactive way and you don't do it. So for example, there's the mitzvah of studying Torah, which is something that actually a Jewish man is commanded to do at every moment, every day. So that's kind of, I don't know how realistic that is, right? So most likely everybody, uh, every man anyways, will most likely feel that they might have to do tshuva for that, for not learning Torah every second of their day. This could be also something like, um, I don't know, what would be another positive commandment would be maybe lighting Shabbos candles. Lighting Shabbos candles is a positive proactive commandment, right? So it's like you either light Shabbos candles or you don't. So if you miss, God forbid, lighting Shabbos candles one week, that's a sin of omission, of not doing it. Also, putting on tefillin for a man is another positive commandment. So there are lots of different positive commandments that we can think of. And neglecting to do a positive commandment would require a certain level of tshuva, a certain type of tshuva. Then, on the other hand, what's next category is transgressing a negative commandment, right? Doing a transgression, God forbid. So this would be like doing something like God says, you're not allowed to do this. Like maybe, for example, eating food that is not 100% kosher in some way. Uh, so this is obviously something that a person should never do, right? But let's say if they do it, then that's a certain type of transgression that they would then need to do tshuva for. They would ne then need to repent for in some way to restore their sense of equilibrium with God and with themselves. And then there's a third level, the third category of what a person needs to do tshuva for. What's that? That's where a person is not only committing a transgression, but they're committing a transgression that is that the sin for which is kares, is excision from the Jewish people or and or uh, punishment by, uh, by death at the hand of uh, the beitin, at the hands of the court back in back in the day. We don't we don't do that anymore nowadays, but at least in biblical times, this was something that was it's written explicitly that there are certain sins that are punishable by death or punishable by excision. As a disclaimer, this kind of doesn't really apply too much nowadays just because uh, there's thought of this idea that we're all kind of in this like ignoramus kind of state and we don't really know what we're doing. But theoretically speaking, if somebody really, really knew what they were doing and and they, they did one of these transgressions anyways, they, it would fall into this category of, of that. So these are very, very severe transgressions. This would involve something like eating chametz on Passover, uh, like eating bread or leavened products and you know, wheat products and things like that. Um, also violating Shabbos falls into this category. So there are different types of transgressions that fall into this category. So again, so we have three basic categories of things that a person 
might do, God forbid, that would involve them needing to do tshuva to restore their equilibrium. Category number one is is omission, sin by omission. So it's where you neglect, where a person neglects to do a positive commandment. Category two is sin by commission. So that is where a person actually actively does a transgression that they're not supposed to do. And then the third one is where a person violates not just any old negative commandment, but they violate a commandment that is punishable by death by a court or by a karis. So yeah, so those are the three general categories. And what we're going to learn about today is about how it is to give us a a little bit of an introduction. And we're going to talk about this more as we get further into the book, but to give us by way of introduction, a little sense of what is required in order to repent from each one of these things from each of these types of transgressions, of these violations against God. And so what we'll see, that what's going to come up in this discussion is a question and something, and in, the, in analyzing the different methods by which and what's required of us in order to do tshuva, something puzzling is going to come up. And in order to appreciate why it's puzzling and in order to appreciate uh, the question that's going to come up, we have to give another little introduction. So I know this is like a lot of introductions within introductions. We haven't even gotten into the text yet. So please bear with me. I hope um, I hope you're following along because I, I know it's a lot. This is one of those longer episodes today. But there, yeah, there's a lot here. It's a very dense, uh, dense section today. But I'm really trying the best I can to make it as comprehensible as possible. I thought about maybe just omitting some of the introductory things, but I just thought all of it is so interesting and, and gives more of a, an appreciation of what it is that we're going to be learning. I, I decided to keep it all in. So that being said, so before we get into discussing the different ways that are uh, that are asked of us to repent, the different me- methods that, that the ultra will give us to have our repentance um, be complete. There's another thing that we need to mention about these different categories that we're discussing, namely these the two general categories, the t- category of the positive commandments versus the transgressions, the negative commandments. So the question comes up, which are more important? Is it more important to do positive commandments or is it more important to do to refrain from doing negative commandments? Obviously, they're both very important and, and it's kind of it might sound like kind of a strange question to ask, but we find that actually the sages do discuss this and they actually conclude that the positive commandments are more important. And there's a, there's an idea that if you have a conflict between a positive and negative commandment, then the positive commandment takes precedent. So where where do we see that? What what does this mean? What would be an example of this? So we see a very practical example of this in wearing tzitzis, where men need to wear tzitzis, right? So uh, so tzitzis, what are tzitzis made up of? Tzitzis are made up of shatnas. They're made up of wool and linen, which is actually uh, a prohibition. So usually in normal circumstances, one of the things that we're not allowed to do is we're not allowed to wear shatnas. We're not allowed to wear any clothing that has a mix, mixture of wool and linen. But we find that tzitzis are made up of wool and linen. So how does this work? This is because, yes, even though the mitzvah of shatnas is a negative prohibition, nevertheless, the mitzvah of tzitzis, which is a positive commandment, overrides it. So it takes precedent. 
this work? So how does this work on a spiritual level? So the idea is that going back into maybe a more spiritual understanding of the commandments, when we look at the positive commandments, the positive commandments have to do with drawing down light into the world. So again, there's 248 positive commandments. And the idea of the 248 positive commandments is they can be thought of as 248 different types of radiance, different types of light that we draw down when we do these different actions, when we light Shabbos candles, when men put on tefillin, things like that. We actively do things and we're actively drawing down that light. Prohibitions, on the other hand, 365 transgressions, prohibitions, negative commandments, what do they accomplish? By refraining from doing any of these activities, they, that serves as a blockage of negative energy coming into the world. So we're so when we actively decide, no, I'm not going to do that, I'm going to put up a boundary and I'm going to refrain from doing these prohibitive activities, what we're doing is we're blocking a flow of negative light into the world. So now when you have a conflict between these two things, like in the case of tzitzis, so the light that shines down through the performance of the positive commandments is overrides the negative energy. So meaning to say that it's like the, the influx is so great of this, this energy, this light that comes down through doing the positive commandment that it, it blocks any negative influence that might come in otherwise. So we don't even need to worry about the negative commandment. We don't need that extra, extra uh, protection that we otherwise would need to have if there was no positive commandment, because that powerful flow of, uh, of positive energy that we're drawing down through the positive proactive uh, keeping of the commandments is, is it automatically blocks the negative flow. So this is where maybe, maybe you can start to see this idea of move fast and break things come in, even though we're going to talk about that more, is that this idea of like, when you just do a lot of good, like that's maybe on a more simplistic way to think about it. You just do good, do good, do good, do good. Enough good is going to just like neutralize the negative is a very maybe simple way of understanding it. Okay, so now here's where the question of today is going to come up and then we're going to come to you uh, to explaining it is that so from this discussion, it seems like the positive commandments are more powerful. The positive commandments are of higher value in a sense than the negative commandments, right? So now what's interesting is that once we get into this discussion of how to do tshuva, on these different things. So how to do tshuva if a, per, if a person omits, neglects to do a positive commandment versus how to do tshuva if somebody neglects to do a negative commandment. We find that the process is very different and that the process for uh, doing tshuva over omission of doing a positive commandment is actually quite simple. And it's not that complex. It's not that uh, involved. It basically is just do tshuva. It basically means just really just try to repent, try to do better, resolve to do better next time, and that's it. Versus when we look at the tshuva that is required for violating a negative commandment, it's a lot more involved. It's not so simple. Basically, what what you got to do is that first of all, you have to do tshuva, and then not only do you have to do tshuva, but then you actually have to wait until Yom Kippur, uh, at, at which point then you're you become cleansed, then you become uh, atoned for your sins become atoned for. So there's this whole period of waiting where it's like, it's not so simple. It's not like you just do tshuva and then you're all better. And in the case of the really, really severe negative commandments, like those that involve excision or, uh, or penalty by death and things like that, 
And Yom Kippur doesn't even rectify the person. They actually have to wait until they die, uh, God forbid. And then they have to go through a process of suffering and things like that to really have their souls cleansed. So it's, it's quite, it's quite intense. So that is, so, so that is a very puzzling if you think about it, because if we're saying on the one hand that the, the power of a positive commandment is so strong and is so powerful, and it's much stronger than the power of a negative commandment, why is it you would think then that, that the shuva that would be needed to rectify the omission of a positive commandment would be much greater than that needed for violating a negative commandment, but that's not the case. So why? So the answer we'll learn is actually shocking. And the answer is actually, I, I think the first time I heard this, I literally got shivers when I, when I heard this. Um, it's, it's really kind of mind-blowing. The, the answer in short is that when it comes to negative commandments, like transgressions, yes, the tshuva is very involved and it's, there's a lot, you know, and it might require a lot of suffering and it might require a lot of work and a lot of patience and a lot of, you know, energy and exertion, but ultimately you can get there. Ultimately, you can get to the point where you can actually cleanse yourself of any negative wrongdoing that you've ever done. If you've ever gone actively against God, God forbid, if you've ever transgressed anything that that God asks of you, which really ultimately we'll learn is a transgression against ourselves, you can fix this. It's fixable. It's something you can do. However, when it comes to sins of omission, when it comes to sins of neglect, of not doing something that was asked of you, why is it that the tshuva is so simple? Is because true rectification of the past in that instance is impossible. It's gone. The past is gone. The moment was gone. If you had the opportunity to do something good and you didn't do that good thing, sure, you can take the time to resolve to do better in the future. You can take the time to really make new habits, put new habits in place so that you will do better in the future, but you can't go back to the past and you can't do something that you didn't do in the past. If you had an opportunity to do something kind, to say a nice word to somebody and you didn't, if you had the opportunity to walk an old lady across the street and you didn't, you can never redo that. You can never go back. You can never fix that moment in time, which is why the tshuva is very simple because (laughs) that's all there is. There's, there's, that's there's nothing you can do other than that. So how shocking is that, <laughs> right? I, th- I think, I don't know, to me, that's that's really, really powerful. And it really points to that idea of move fast and break things. That Hashem doesn't, it's not that he doesn't care if we make mistakes, but he understands that mistakes are part of our nature. And he gives us a system in place for us to rectify ourselves from our mistakes so that if we do mess up, which we will mess up, we'll all mess up, we're all human. We're gonna do things that are not, okay and that need to be rectified we grow from our mistakes and that's okay and we can grow from our mistakes but what we can't fix are things we never did if we can't fix not trying we can't fix having an opportunity and having missed that opportunity sure new opportunities are going to come up for sure but that past opportunity that we had if we didn't take that opportunity it's gone forever so it's really intense it's something to think about and it really points again to this idea of move fast and break things maybe not totally literally like we shouldn't just be like uh ruthless obviously in our pursuit of 
whether it's business or our service of God, but it's something to think about that really it's, we got to just keep doing, keep going and going and going and, and move, move, move. That's, that's what God wants us to do. Draw down more light, move, bring more light into the world to the point that positive energy supersedes negative energy. We can, we can where it sets us because we don't have to worry about the negative influx of, of, uh, the shot coming in, meaning on a deeper level, if we just keep doing good, keep doing good, keep doing good, we don't have to worry about not doing bad. This is part of the Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe's philosophy in general in, his, in life was this idea of he just really encouraged his chassidim to be so busy. If you look at like all the things that he asked of his chassidim to do, it's crazy. It's like an, it's impossible to do everything that he asked us to do. But I think that part of this was this idea that he wanted us to be so busy with doing good that there wouldn't be time or space for any bad for any negativity to come in and just the more good we can do the more opportunities we get because those opportunities are not going to be there forever and so we want to want to get them while we can you know so that's the very long introduction i know that was super long and with that being said we're going to get into the text now and we're going to hopefully have a deeper appreciation of this text that we're going to be learning the very the beginning of chapter one of Iger Sachuva. so here we go let's let's get straight into it so the chapter begins by bringing up a teaching that's found in the Gemara in Masachat Yomaj, page 86a, which says that there are three different types of atonement. So what are these, what do we mean by three different types of atonement? So as we'll learn, there's three different types of ways that a person can transgress the Torah. And for each one of these three different types of transgressions, there's a different atonement required to bring the person back to that state of equilibrium of absolution as to what they were before they transgressed. And then the Gemara goes on, and uh, as explained by the altar rabbi here, that there's a tshuva that accompanies each one of these types of transgressions. As explained in the introduction, the word tshuva is a little tricky to translate. Does it mean repentance, return, whatever? So for now, we'll say tshuva. We'll translate it more as return. So there's, and the thing to know about it is that it's some kind of active process that a person needs to do to return to their previous state. So basically, in short, there's three different categories of transgressions. These three different categories of transgressions, in order to be, there's a different process whereby a person is absolved of these transgressions. And together with this absolution, the process of tshuva, the process of return, this is an active process that a person does, is accompanies each one. So the altar rabbi begins and he tells us about the first type of transgression. The first type of transgression is somebody who who violates a, a positive commandment. So one who violates a positive commandment and returns and does tshuva, then they are forgiven. And in Hebrew it says, which means literally that he does not move from there until he is forgiven. Which basically the, what that means is that if a person violates a positive commandment, they can do tshuva for it. And they can just keep doing tshuva for it until they become forgiven. So eventually they will become forgiven if they just keep doing tshuva. Okay, now second category. What if somebody violated a mitzvah lotase, violated a negative commandment, a transgression, and then they do tshuva? So in this case, te teaches us, uh, the Altarva teaches us, I'm assuming from the Gemara, that the, his, his tshuva in that case is tentative. 
And then on Yom Kippur, he becomes atoned. So meaning to say that the person does need to do tshuva. If a person violates a negative commandment, they need to do tshuva. But tshuva itself is not sufficient. That tshuva is still going to be tentative. It's not going to. It's it's not going to do its fullest um, accomplishment until Yom Kippur. When on Yom Kippur, the person becomes totally atoned. And now the altar over here says in brackets that this is the case, meaning to say that uh, that a negative commandment requires more, it's, it's a more involved process of absolution, meaning you have to wait till Yom Kippur to be absolved versus violating a positive commandment. You don't have to wait till Yom Kippur to be absolved. So this is the case, even though we learn elsewhere, also in the Gemara, this time in Yavamos, page uh, 3b, that a uh, Mitzvah ase, a, a positive commandment, keeping a positive commandment supersedes a negative commandment. So, um, and why is this? So, so it's more important to keep a positive commandment than to to refrain from doing a negative commandment. And why is this? This is because through keeping a positive commandment, a person is drawing down light and influence into from the the higher worlds, from the uh, the radiance of the Or Ein Sof Baruch Hu, from the blessed light of the infinite, meaning from God. So whenever we do a positive commandment, we're basically drawing down God's radiance and God's light. And the Altar says that this is explained in the Zohar, this idea, which we've learned about previously, that the 248 positive commandments are the 248 organs of the king. So when we perform any of the positive commandments, we're drawing down God's light, God's organs down here into the into this world. And not only are we drawing them down into this world, we're also drawing them down into our godly souls. As it says, we say, and you made us holy with your mitzvahs, meaning to say that we, uh, that through doing these, our, these mitzvahs, these positive commandments, it brings a certain holiness into our souls. However, when it comes to tshuva, then let's say if somebody does neglects to do one of these positive commandments. So if a person then goes and does shiva for this, then yes, they'll be forgiven for the fact that, uh, and they won't be punished for rebelling against God, against God's kingship, right? So they'll be forgiven uh, for the fact that they didn't do the will of the king. But nevertheless, the light will not be there. As uh, as the sage is taught, and this is from Mishle, chapter 1, verse 15, where there's a saying that says, which means a crookedness cannot be corrected. Something that's like a, that's crooked cannot be fixed. So, and this is in, and then the sage is taught that this is in relation to somebody who neglected reading Kriyashma or Arvis or like the, the prayer of Arvis or any of the prayers or something like that. So, Meaning to say that, let's say if somebody neglects to do any of these positive commandments, let's say they neglect to read the Shema prayer before they go to sleep, or they neglect to do one of the prayers in the middle of the day, like Shachars or Arvis or something like that. So if they really neglect to do it, and then they feel really badly about it, and they go and do Tshuva, and they really show they, that they regret not praying and all of that, and they absolve to do better next time and all of that, so they'll be forgiven. Hashem will forgive them. It's totally fine. But they can never draw down that light that they could have drawn down if they would have prayed during those times. So that light is gone. There's You can't fix the past in that way. 
even if a person uh, really absolves in the future to be really diligent about reading the Shema and um, during the morning and in the night and forever and ever, nevertheless, this Shiva cannot fix the past. It can't fix something that happened in the past. Okay, so now the altar is going to move on to transgressions, to if somebody violates a negative commandment, what happens? So if a person violates a negative commandment, violates a prohibition. So through this, this causes a certain evilness to cleave to his soul. And it makes some kind of blemish above also in the source of the soul and the sort is in its root. And then in brackets, the altar gets a little technical about this. And he says that it makes a blemish in one of the 10 spheres of Asiya, as it's written in Tikkuni Zohar, that it says that you have fashioned garbs for the spheres from which fly forth souls for man. So the basic idea is that if a person violates uh, a negative commandment, if, if somebody does something that they're not supposed to do, like actually um, does uh, transgresses a prohibition, then this causes a blemish in their soul and in the root of their soul, which is why there cannot really be true atoner for their soul and not for and and not above either like the the cleansing above and the root of the soul can't happen until Yom Kippur as it says and then th this is a uh this is from Vayikra chapter 16 verse 16 and verse 30 where it says which means he shall atone for the holy place because of the impurities of the children of Israel and because of their sins and before Hashem, you shall be purified. So the basic idea is that there's something about Yom Kippur, that the day of Yom Kippur has the special power to be able to absolve a person from the blemish that is caused when they do a transgression, when they violate something, when they do a pro when they do something they're not supposed to do. And then just again, to kind of get technical about it, the ultra says that he really, he focuses on the idea where it says, Lifnei Hashem that before Hashem, you'll be purified, that second citation. So if you look at the Hebrew, it says, Lifnei Hashem, meaning Lifnei Yudke Vavke, Lifnei, before the Tetragrammaton, which means to say that it's like basically Yom Kippur is such a high holiday that it goes to this level that's beyond the Tetragrammaton. And because it goes to that level that's beyond the Tetragrammaton, that's the level at which these blemishes can be rectified, can be erased. So this, so basically, so just to bring it all together, the altar says that from here, we can't say that like it's, uh, we should be lenient, God forbid, about any of the mitzvahs ase. Uh, so, so meaning that like, okay, let's think about all of this. So basically, so at, once again, so when you look at these two categories, the category of violating a positive commandment versus the category of violating a negative commandment, at first glance, it might seem like it's a lot more serious to violate a negative commandment. Because if you violate a negative commandment, if you violate a prohibition, then it's not enough just to do tshuva. You actually have to go and wait till Yom Kippur until you'll become totally absolved of of this and have the blemish erased from your soul. Versus when you violate a positive commandment, all you need to do is just do tshuva. And if you just do tshuva, you'll be absolved and that's it. You're fine. You're good to go. Hashem forgave you. But never. But what the Aldrabra taught us is it's not that simple because when it comes to a positive commandment, yes, it's true that you may be absolved and you may be forgiven, but that light that you could have drawn down were you to have done that positive commandment, which you neglected to do, can never be drawn down again. So it's not that it's like, it's it's so much easier to fix. It's that the, the tshuva for it is, and the atonement for it is fairly simple because that's all that's possible. It's like, there's there's no, nothing more that we can do, you know? 
And so going back into the positive commandments and stressing how really this should not be like a, um, a get out of jail free card for us to kind of feel like that it's not such a big deal for us to violate a positive commandment. So the ultra says that we should not think like this. And especially when it comes to Torah study, which is a positive commandment, right? So on the contrary, the ultra says the sages taught, and this is taken actually from the Jerusalem Talmud, this teaching from Masachat Chagiga 1.7, where it says that in certain instances, Hashem was able to overlook even idolatry, incest, or murder, even though these things are punishable by kares or mita, like um, like by excision or by uh, by capital punishment, uh, according to the Beistan, to the by the court of law. So he was able to overlook all of these in some instances, but he was not able to overlook the neglect of Torah study. So meaning to say that the teaching is teaching the, this teaching is teaching us that there's something about Torah study and the mitzvah of Torah study, which is a positive commandment, which is something that God cannot really overlook. It's something which is considered like more intense for God to neglect that than even something like one of these really crazy big sins like uh, idolatry or incest or murder, which usually are thought of as to be the worst sins. God's able, able to overlook those more quickly than he's able to overlook the mitzvah of neglecting to do Torah study. Okay, so, so far, we have discussed two categories. We discussed the category of a person who violates a positive commandment, and then we discussed the category of somebody who violates a prohibition. And so now, the altar is going to conclude by discussing briefly the case of somebody who who's in the third category, which, what is the third category of violations? This is somebody who violates something which is punishable by kares or death by the hand of the court, so by excision or by execution by the hands of the beastin. And in this case, says the Altrabe, Tshuva and Yom Kippur are both tentative, so they're not enough. And really, you need to wait until there, there's punishment after death, like there's punishment that happens after a person passes away, and that's what's going to eventually cleanse the person and atone the person. Meaning to say that this is going to finish off the atonement. And so this word in Hebrew is memalakin, which it comes from the 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 word merika, which literally means scouring and rinsing in order to polish the soul. And so basically what this means is because the whole idea of atonement, or in Hebrew it's kapara, comes again from the comes from the lashon, comes from the language of kinuach, which means cleansing, meaning to say that it's it's cleansing the person of all sin. So the point of all of this, what the altar is trying to explain is that like when we should when we think about atonement, when we say, oh, you know, what do we need in order to seek atonement? We really should think about it as a cleansing process. It's not so much as like in maybe some other cultures, people might think of it as like a punishment, like you do a sin and then God punishes you to like teach you better to do better next time or like you deserve it or that kind of thing. But it's more like that if a person, God forbid, sins in some way, this causes a blemish in their soul and we need to figure out a way to cleanse the soul of that blemish. And so now the ultra but concludes with a verse from Tehillim chapter 89 verse 33 which says with a rod shall I remember their sin and with afflictions their inequity. So meaning to say that there is a suffering that needs to happen as a result of really severe sins. So really severe sins in order to be cleansed of these really severe sins there needs to be some kind of suffering process that needs to um, 
to come about. And then till here, says the ultra rabbit, this is, this is up till here is where the Brita um, discusses this whole idea. So this Brita that is found at the end of Masachet Yoma, which we began with this whole idea of like the three categories of atonements and transgressions and Shiva and all of that. This is till here is where the teachings end. So that's, the end of the section for today. So just to kind of bring it all together is so again, so just uh, just to summarize, what we learned today is that there's this teaching in Masachet Yoma that there are three different types of atonement that correspond to three different types of transgressions and that Shuva needs to accompany one of them. And so then we explained what each one is. So the first category is the category of somebody who violates a positive commandment, in which case, you just need shiva. That's it. Just just do shiva, and then you're atoned, and you're good to go. Second category is somebody who violates a negative commandment, in which case a person needs to not only do shiva, but then they need to wait, like that shiva is tentative, until Yom Kippur, at which point on Yom Kippur, they become atoned. They become cleansed of their sin. The third category is the person who violates, God forbid, a really serious transgression that is the punishable punishable by excision or uh, punishment by the basting, by the court, the Jewish court, in which case they need to do tshuva, they need to wait till Yom Kippur, and not only then, for full atonement to happen, they actually need to wait until they pass away, at which point they'll have to experience a lot of suffering in order to cleanse the blemish that happened in their soul. And so that's just the map of what happens in the case of these three different transgressions in, in in these instances. And then the other interesting point that the altar brought up, which I think was really the main point to me, the biggest takeaway from the, what we learned today is that while it might seem from this teaching that violating a positive commandment is not that serious because really all you need to do is just do tshuva and then you're immediately forgiven or it may take a while, but just the tshuva itself will lead to forgiveness and atonement. It's not that simple because whereas violating a negative commandment maybe a lot more involved in terms of the atonement that can happen. Atonement eventually can be achieved in those instances, even in the instances of punish of sins that are so severe, sins that involve excision, sins that are punishable by death, these kind of things. It may be painful. It may take a really long process, but eventually a person can actually rectify their soul. They can eventually come back to a state of total cleansing of the soul and total like renewal like like as if the thing never happened the bad thing never happened versus in the case of a positive commandment the reason why the process of chiva is so simple and it's just that's that's it that's all you do is because there's no way to rectify the past you can you can't not go back and draw down that light that came that usually is drawn down when we do these positive commandments you can't ever draw down light that wasn't drawn down to begin with that was not drawn down because of neglect. So that, so this is like the biggest case of FOMO ever, really. It's like what happened, happened, and we can never go back. We can't ever redo something that we didn't do. So the takeaway message that I take again is again, this idea of maybe not move fast and break things. Maybe that's again, a little too harsh, a little too ruthless, but really to just keep doing good, keep being positive, keep being active, like being active is so important because if you don't want to miss out, you don't want to miss out on the good opportunities that are out there in the world and the opportunities to do good and they're everywhere. And if you mess up, you're going to mess up. It's fine. You're human. We can fix that. It might be painful. It might be difficult, but there's always hope of fixing things where you make mistakes. But to miss out on positive opportunities, if the positive opportunity presents itself to you right now, you got to take it because if you don't take it now, it's going to be gone. 
and you can never get it again. Sure, there'll be other positive opportunities that come up, hopefully in the future, but the one, but the ones that come up right now, those are here for the here and now, and they're never going to come up again. So take it while you can, seize the day as the saying goes, and uh, and that's it. And so tomorrow we are going to continue and we're actually going to conclude this first chapter of Igar Sachiva and I will speak to you then. Thanks for listening to the It Is Top podcast, hosted by Sarit Switzer. This podcast is dedicated in loving memory of my maternal grandfather, Avraham Yitzchak ben Benyamin Cohen of Blessed Memory. Music by Shoshana. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the show, please share it with others and subscribe on YouTube, Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And make sure to leave us a five-star review. To find out more about the It Is Top project, including more information on my soon-to-be-published book, please visit our website, itistaught.com. To catch the latest from me, follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Looking forward to speaking with you tomorrow, and until then, have a great day.